In many cultures, bread is something of a staple food. I remember some years ago, traveling between Pittsburgh and Chad, we made a pit stop in Paris and had this buffet breakfast that had all these different cheeses and breads. In fact, just this past week, several people gifted us with loaves of homemade yummy bread. Even in Filipino culture in which rice, not bread, is the staple food, they have their own pandesal, the bread of the sun, a kind of breakfast sweet bun that is delicious. Perhaps your mouth is watering at this point. But I want us to think about bread in the context of this second feast that we are looking at in Leviticus chapter 23 because its title is named after the main diet of this feast, namely bread, but not fluffy baked bread, but leavened, or I'm sorry, unleavened bread that is a kind of a flat bread. Uh, In this particular feast, we studied, remember, the feast of Passover uh, several weeks back, and then we looked at that last Passover, the Lord's Supper, last week. And by the time Jesus comes along, the feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread had kind of morphed together, which makes sense because they butt right up against one another on the Tenth day of Nisan, the the Passover lamb was to be selected. On the fourteenth day, the Passover was to be observed. And that whole Seder thing that we went through uh, several weeks back, that was on the fourteenth at twilight. And then on the fifteenth, according to the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus chapter 23, began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But there's a morphing of it because part of the Feast of Passover also required as uh, the side, if you will, to the lamb to be unleavened bread. And so we're going to look at the second feast. And while many commentators and authors kind of lump these together, I think there's There's enough for us to think through with this Feast of Unleavened Bread, and particularly the imagery and the picture that the unleavened bread gives us. In verse 6, it says, Then on the 15th day of the same month, as I mentioned, this is the the first month on the Jewish calendar, which was uh, sometime in spring, the month of Nisan. On the 15th day, this is the, the day after the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread to Yahweh. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Now, now this phrase translated feast, uh, it's the Hebrew word hog or hodj. In fact, uh, it, there's probably some relationship with the Arabic. If, you, if you've ever heard of a Muslim talk about going on hajj, it was a pilgrimage feast. It's their, their pilgrimage to Mecca uh, that is one of the five pillars of Islam. But, but obviously, we're talking about the Bible here. And in, in And here, this is a feast, and it was indeed a pilgrimage feast. It was one of the three feasts in which, according to Deuteronomy 16 and uh, and Exodus, that, that the Jewish males were required to attend these 
three different feasts. And, and really, if you attended one of these, if you attended each of these three different feasts, the other feasts were close enough that you might as well go to that feast as well. And again, this is similar to, you know, we talk about, you know, around, you know, mid-December, we start greeting people, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and what? Happy New Year. These two holidays kind of get lumped together. In a similar way, this Feast of Unleavened Bread was lumped together with Passover. And it is a seven-day feast. And there's really three characteristics of this feast. There's Sabbath, sacrifice, and special diet. And so here in verse 7, we see the Sabbath. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. And then notice the last part of verse 8 of Leviticus 23. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You, uh, you shall not do any laborious work. So it was a Sabbath command that, that normally applied to that seventh day of the week was, was given as both the first day of this feast and the last day of this feast. Not to do any work. And also... In, in verse 8, it was characterized by sacrifice. But for seven days you shall bring near an offering by fire to Yahweh. For seven days there were to be sacrifices that were to be brought to Yahweh. And, and when we turn to the book of Numbers, we get some insight into what those sacrifices looked like. In Numbers chapter 28, verses 18 to 25, there are instructions given related to the sacrifices that the priests were to bring before Yahweh during this seven-day feast. Numbers 28, 18 says, On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. We just saw that. Verse 19, And you shall bring near an offering by fire, a burnt offering to Yahweh, two bulls from the herd and one ram and the seven male lambs one year old. They shall be for you without blemish. Verse 20. Now as for their grain offering, you shall offer fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for a bull and two-tenths for a ram. A tenth of an ephah you shall offer for each of the seven lambs. One male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. You shall offer these beside the burnt, beside the burnt offering of the morning which is for a continual burnt offering. After this manner you shall offer daily for seven days the food of the offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. It shall be offered with its drink offering in addition to the continual burnt offering. Now on the seventh day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall, not, you shall do no laborious work. So here, there was, there was two particular offerings. One, if you remember back to our studies in Leviticus 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7, there was the, uh, the this sin offering, as it's called here, which is more the idea of the purification offering, where the blood was used as a kind of detergent to cleanse both the altar and the tabernacle and the worshiper of uncleanness. And then there's also the burnt offering, which that was the first of the sacrifices mentioned in Leviticus chapter 1. This is the whole burnt offering where the entire animal was consumed 
on the altar, and this was a substitutionary kind of sacrifice, a substitute for sin. And so these offerings were to take place throughout those seven days, and it's bookend by a day of rest. But also, the special diet. The special diet, we see, is particularly the unleavened bread. In fact, turn over to the book of Exodus, again, for more insight. Leviticus 23 is a kind of a catalog of the feasts. You know, when you, well, I know, some of you never probably even seen a catalog. You're too, too young for that. But they used to have these things called catalogs. And they would send it in the mail, and it would be like a list of the inventory that stores had. Um, I guess there are still some catalogs out there today. but um, So... But it doesn't give you all the details. You would actually have to go to the store, you know, look at the owner's manual, whatever, to get more information. And, and so the catalog of the feast is found in Leviticus 23. But to find out more, uh, more about these feasts, you have to go elsewhere. So in Exodus chapter 12, uh, I'll begin in verse 11. It says, now you shall eat in this manner, and this is talking about the Passover, not the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but there's overlap here. With your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Passover of Yahweh. So the Israelites were commanded to eat with their loins girded. Which you read that and you think, what does that mean, right? <laughs> the, the idea here was if, if you were wearing a robe in the ancient world and you were going to run, like imagine you're a young person who likes to, you know, go out front here and play football or play volleyball or get on the basketball court, but you're not wearing shorts, you're wearing a robe, okay? It's not easy to move around in a robe, Right? And so you would kind of take the end of the robe and make it like a half robe. And you would tuck it in your belt so that you could move around. You could juke people. You could do your moves on the court or whatever. But also, if you were, if you were going to be moving about quickly, if you were going to be running, if you were going to be moving quickly, you would gird up your loins. You would, you would button up your robe so that you could move more freely. And also the instructions are given here that, that there's to be a staff in your hand, sandals on your feet, your, your shoes are tied. Why, do you, wh- why are your shoes tied? Well, it's the same reason when your mom says we're leaving, get your shoes on. Tie, get your shoes on, get your jacket, right? Staff in your hand, get ready to leave. That's the idea here. This is how God wanted the Hebrews to be eating the Passover. And then also we're going to see this coincides with the Feast of Unleavened Bread with readiness. With readiness. Verse 12. And I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. And I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. 
And the blood shall be a sign on the houses where you are. And I will see the blood and I will pass over you. And there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike you, uh, when I strike the land. Verse 14. Now this day will be a memorial for you, to you. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a perpetual feast. Seven days, okay, so now we're talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. But on the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Whoa. This is a very strict diet, right? You know, some of you have been or maybe you are on a diet you know there's varying degrees of strictness right well you know maybe a little Hershey kiss won't hurt you know but this was a strict diet so strict any kind of leaven wasn't even allowed to be in the house now the obvious question at this point is for those who are not deep into the culinary arts what is leaven well leaven was was yeast you know, I can remember when I was young, you know, you maybe open up the refrigerator and you see this banana that looks like it's 13 years old, you know. And you're like, ew, mom, what's this doing in here? This is nasty, right? And, and your mom informs you that is so that she can make some bread, which doesn't help in your thinking, right? Ew, you mean I'm going to eat that thing? You know, so the idea here is this leaven, this yeast, was, would be used for the, the, the raising of the bread so that, you know, when you mix it in the dough, uh, the whatever chemicals are there in that leaven, in that yeast, cause uh, there to be a raising process. But also I can also vividly remember... You know, that, uh, that piece of dough sitting on, the, on top of the oven and maybe there was some heat coming from the oven to try to help expedite the, the raising process and remembering how that, that piece of dough just kept expanding and expanding and expanding. Well, that's leavened bread. But here, Moses is telling the Israelites, no, 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 not that kind of bread. It has to be unleavened bread so much that you're you're to take it out of the house purge it even from the house there's to be no leaven in the house so that nobody's you know sneaking a loaf of bread on the side verse 16 now on the first day there shall be a holy convocation on the seventh day there shall be a, a holy convocation for you no work shall be done on them we already read that except what must be eaten by every person, that alone may be done for you. In other words, no work except the preparation for the food each day, which, as has already been stated, has to be unleavened bread. Verse 17, 
You shall also keep the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this day throughout your generation as a perpetual statute. On the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of that month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall not eat any anything leavened in all your places of your habitation. You shall eat unleavened bread. And so, again, what's the idea here? No unleavened, no leavened bread. If you were to do so, you could be cut off. Now, what's that cut off? We've seen that language in in Leviticus, right? And sometimes it means execution, but I think sometimes it also means if, there's not, if it's not a capital crime that can be executed, in other words, the person got away with it, God was basically saying, I will cut you off. I will deal with you, whether that meant a premature death, uh, but certainly it meant a kind of sobering reality that you would be forever cut off from the covenant community. So it was a very serious crime. And then drop your eyes down to verse 34 of same chapter, chapter 12. So the people took up their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound in their clothes and on their shoulders. So this is as they are exiting, they are actually bringing this unleavened bread. Verse 39 of the same chapter. And they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So, so, so this is what, what I want you to really understand about this, is that part of the imagery of it being unleavened was that you were to be prepared. Just like you had to have your loins girded and the staff in your hand and your sandals strapped, you weren't allowed to have leavened bread because leavened bread meant you had to wait, right? You're waiting for it to rise. But God's saying, no, no, no. There's no waiting here. Because when I come, you need to be ready. When I call, you need to be ready. When I'm saying, let's get out of Egypt, this is the time to go. And you need to be waiting in readiness. And so, also again, Exodus 13, verse 6 and 7 says, For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the Seventh day there shall be a feast to Yahweh. Unleavened shall be eaten throughout the days. Nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among all uh, among you in all your borders. So, what we see here is this very important principle from the imagery. The imagery here of having unleavened bread very clearly is consistent with having the. The, the loins girded, the staff in the hand, the sandals on the feet is to be ready. And so we're going to learn three different truths from the imagery of the unleavened bread. The first is to live as a prepared pilgrim. To live as a prepared pilgrim. Again, Exodus 12, 11, you shall eat in this manner, your loins girded, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. 
in haste. Say, so does, does the New Testament pick up on this imagery? Which, which by the way, I, the interpretive principle of reading the Bible backwards, I think, is helpful. That you read the, the New Testament, there's, there's information in the New Testament that sheds light on the Old Testament. We shouldn't neglect the Old Testament, but, but we should read it backwards. There's progress in Revelation. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. I'm going to have to display some self-control here because we could spend a lot of time in 1 Peter. But in 1 Peter, if you, if you remember 1 Peter, the, the way it starts out, he's writing to those who are scattered, right? He's writing to the exiles, the aliens in, 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 in 1 Peter 1. One, to those who reside as exiles. And then in verse 3 and following, he begins to highlight the the wonder and the glory of their salvation. And he's using Old Testament imagery to New Testament saints that is kind of piggybacking off of the pictures and types of the Old Testament. For instance, he says in in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So he's, he's talking again to New Testament believers, but he's saying, you have an inheritance. You have an inheritance. Now, the language of an inheritance for an Old Testament believer was always clear. What was the inheritance? It was the promised land. But he's talking to scattered New Testament saints who ain't in the land. They're not in Israel. They're not in Jerusalem. They're scattered and all over all these different pagan lands. And he's saying, you have an inheritance. An inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that never fades away. Namely, the promised land of heaven. And so th- this, is, this is what Peter is communicating. And then drop your eyes down to verse 13. Therefore, in light of this glorious salvation... Therefore, having girded your minds for action. Sound familiar? Girded. Girding the loins of your mind for action. That's the idea here that we see back in Exodus chapter 12. Preparing your minds for action. Verse 13. Being sober in spirit, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he talking about here? He's talking about preparing, girding up your loins, living preparedly in light of the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Live as a pilgrim in readiness, ready to go. Don't get so attached to this world. Don't get so attached to your surroundings. You got to be ready to go. And in, just in case you're 
not convinced of this Torah language here in 1 Peter 1, I'll keep reading. Verse 14, as obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the, one who, the Holy One who called you, be holy in all your conduct because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Does that sound familiar, my fellow Leviticus students? That occurs five times in the book of Leviticus. Be holy for I am holy. Verse 17, and if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing that you were not redeemed with incorruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. Does that sound familiar? That's Passover language, right? In other words, Peter is saying we live between the comings. We live between the first coming of Christ, between Passover and the coming of Christ and the shedding of his blood in light of Passover, we, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, learn to live in light of the future coming and preparedness and readiness of deliverance from Egypt to the promised land. In this case, Peter's speaking of the promised land of eternity, the future heaven. And so this is how we're supposed to live. With as a prepared pilgrim. It's no wonder that Peter uses this language later on in First Peter, First Peter two eleven. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that, when, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Same thing with the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, by faith, speaking of Abraham, he sojourned, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise for which he was looking for the city which has its foundation, whose architect and builder is God. So Abraham, he's saying it was also a pilgrim, a sojourner. This language of girding up the loins is also used in Luke chapter 12 from the lips of Jesus as Luke records 12:35 Jesus says gird up your loins and keep your lamps lit and and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him which comes and knocks Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find awake when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so. Blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house 
had known at which time, at which hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed the house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour in which you do not expect. So this imagery that the New Testament uses, it piggybacks off of the the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover imagery. The unleavened bread was a picture of the reality you could not wait for the bread to rise. You had to be ready. The exodus was on the horizon. Deliverance, salvation, and judgment were on the horizon, so you need to live as a pilgrim with your bags packed and ready to go. So, friends, you can hopefully see the application to us as New Testament believers. We're not in ancient Egypt munching on pita, but we are New Testament believers who live in our very own Egypt, awaiting deliverance, awaiting judgment to come. Awaiting the Lord Jesus to come back on his white horse and to bring his people to himself and to execute judgment upon this earth. And you, my friends, when you read the book of, uh, of, of Revelation, what is it that you find there? You see plagues of judgment billowing down on planet earth in this climactic return of the triumphant king on a white horse in Revelation chapter 19. And all of this is imagery piggybacking off of that previous exodus. So my friends, you are a pilgrim. This is not your final destination. And so you ought to live as a prepared pilgrim. You ought to live eating finger food. You ought to live with minimal attachments to this world, realizing that the Lord Jesus is coming back and he's going to clean up this mess of a world. But I fear sometimes we live as if this were our eternal home. Imagine boarding an airplane, waiting in line, find your spot. You know how that goes. You're kind of looking, hoping you don't have to sit next to a large and large person like myself. Maybe there'll just be a spare seat next to you, you know, or you could kind of sprawl out a little bit. You know, they make those seats for somebody who's like five foot eight, 150 pounds. And so you finally find your seat and make your way sitting there. Plane finally closes its doors and takes off and start making some chit chat with the person next to you. And all of a sudden you see the person next to you take out a tape measure, pull out of their carry-on bag some curtains. They start drilling holes, put a curtain up over the window. They, they have these plaques from Hobby Lobby. They start putting them on the chair in front of you. 
thinking, what in the world is this person next to me doing? Right? This is only a four-hour flight. They're acting like this is their home. And yet all too often, we as Christians can take the same approach. We're, this is not our final destination. But yet I think sometimes we look at the world around us and, and, and don't, don't misunderstand me. I, I understand we should plan for the future. We should live as generational Christians. We should pour into our children, prepare them to live in, in the next generation and, and seek to do good. But there also, there's this tension in the Christian life that we also must have our bags packed. We must have the, 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 uh, the staff in the hand. The shoes need to be strapped. The unleavened bread is in the doggy bag. And we're ready to go. Because our attachments to this world are minimal. We seek to do good to prepare people for eternity. To spread the gospel. To get as many people rescued from hell. So that they are on that final destination. They're like pilgrims with us on that journey. We see this, friends, in the New Testament. This is how the early church lived. They lived like pilgrims. Charles Spurgeon says, Let us recollect the frail tenure upon which we hold our temporal mercies. If we would remember that all the trees of the earth are marked for the woodman's axe, we should not be so ready to build our nests in them. This world's headed for the axe. God's axe is going to be laid deep into this world as we know it. Jesus is going to clean up this world. And again, I think this is important because we live in a rapidly changing world not for good right and there's this kind of frantic thing that sometimes takes place in our hearts and and there should be concern but but sometimes there can also be, be this kind of misplaced emphasis that we need to fix up this world and when we can do some good to fix up What we can, hey, let's do it. But also know the axe is coming. And Jesus will clean it all up. Our mission is to make disciples. Our mission is to preach the gospel. Our mission is to pour into those close around us to sow gospel seeds in the hearts and lives of our children to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But this is not our final destination. And so friend, live. Live as a prepared pilgrim. Secondly, live as a penitent pilgrim. A penitent pilgrim. What do I mean by that? Penitent in the sense of repentant. A repentant pilgrim. One of the things you discover when you see this imagery of leaven, 
both in the Old Testament and New Testament, leaven, their yeast, is, is a, a metaphor for, for sin, for pride, for evil. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus said to them, watch out be, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now they all began to discuss amongst themselves saying, he said, because we did not bring bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the 5,000, how many baskets full you picked up? In other words, Jesus is warning about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the disciples are like, bread? Did he say bread? What are we going to have for lunch? And Jesus is like, listen up. That's not what I'm talking about here. And then again in verse 11, how is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? I'm talking about their hypocrisy. I'm talking about their pride. I'm talking about their sin. In other words, these religious leaders don't get infected by their leaven. See the same thing in Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. At this time, after so many thousands of the crowd had gathered together, they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first, be on guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We see the same thing with the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from, from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, he's, he's writing to the church in Galatia. He's saying, you guys were doing so well following the Lord. What happened? What happened? And then he gives this warning. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, it was a little bit of false teaching that had infected their thinking and they were no longer running well for Jesus. Leaven is often associated with sin, especially the sin of pride, which, which makes sense because you think the leaven makes it rise. Whereas unleaven is lowly, which lowliness is often a metaphor for humility in the scriptures. And so this teaches us uh, that we're to live as penitent pilgrims with a kind of corporate repentance. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 1, you may remember, and, and this is... What I love about studying the Old Testament so much, I've read 1 Corinthians 5, I don't know, a thousand times. And I never understood it properly until this past week when I read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, I understood a good chunk of it, but there was a missing piece to the puzzle. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and sexual immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. So he's writing to the church, the church at Corinth. And he's rebuking them. He's saying, I, I'm getting reports here 
of sexual immorality so much that there's this kind of incestuous relationship that's taking place. Which, by the way, where do we see many commands against incestuous relationships? Leviticus, right? Okay, that's the backdrop here. And he says in verse 2, you have become puffed up and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. You guys are arrogant about this. You are prideful. I mean, you have rainbow flags outside related to this. You're just celebrating this. He's saying, shame on you. You should be weeping over this instead. On my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit. And and let me pause. I mean, why might they have been proud of this? Again, the same reason why some people are proud of sexual immorality. Look how, look how liberal we are. Look how progressive we are. <clears throat> and he's, he's just cutting them down. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's ought not to be. He's saying in verse 3, I have already judged him who has so committed this. Now, you may be reading that. <gasps> you judge somebody, Paul? You're not allowed to do that. Well, you need to read your Bible a little bit more closely if you're thinking that. He says, I've judged them as, who has committed this as though I were present in the name of the Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with power of the Lord Jesus deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's Paul talking about here? He's saying they should have exercised church discipline on this man. He was unrepentant. He was in this incestuous relationship and they're celebrating. Instead of celebrating it, they should have called him to repentance and if he didn't call and if he didn't repent put him out of the church that's the idea of delivering him over to satan because the idea is there's the realm of god in his kingdom where christ is head of the church and there's the realm of the world in which the god of this age is the the leader the prince of the power of the air the devil deliver him over to satan he's saying that's what should have happened and notice the purpose of this because this may sound harsh but it's so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, this is for his salvation. He needs to know he cannot live an unrepentant life and still call himself a Christian. Now, don't misunderstand me. Christians sin. But Christians, when they see their sin, they see that it's an offense against the Lord and they're ready to confess it to the Lord and seek forgiveness. And so he says, he should be delivered over to Satan. He should be put out of the church. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. And here we go. Pay attention. Keep your eye on the ball. You may have got lost for a minute here. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's asking this question here. And he's basically saying, if you allow this arrogant, unrepentant, high-handed rebellion to go on without doing anything, then it's just going to spread. You know, people are going to think, well, you know, I guess it's 
here's this guy, he's having relations with his stepmother, I guess it's okay for, you know, I don't have to get married to have relations with my girlfriend, I, you know, another guy over here is starting to flirt with another uh, woman at work who's not his wife, you know, and all of a sudden, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And here, here we go, verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For, and notice the for, for Christ, our Passover lamb, also was sacrificed. I love this. So Paul is saying, and again, remember that connection with unleavened at the Passover feast and then the unleavened, uh, the seven-day un- feast of unleavened bread. It's almost like Paul's saying, clean out the old leaven for you know that Christ is our Passover lamb. In other words, you know that Christ is our Passover lamb. That's an easy type to get. That's an easy picture to get, right? All the New Testament over and over speaks of Christ as that lamb. But also, you need to know the unleavened bread has significance. Namely, the, un, the, 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 the leaven was a picture of sin that needed to be purged and put out. Now, what I did not tell you about the feast of unleavened bread was a, a tradition that came about. A tradition that was based upon the instructions of the Old Testament... This is from this encyclopedia on Jewish tradition. From the, it says this. The mere possession of hametz, that's the leaven, during Passover is also forbidden. The first step toward ridding the home of hametz is a thorough general house cleansing. To symbolize the final removal of the hametz, from the home, a formal search for leaven, the bedekat chametz, is conducted on the night before Passover, before the search. It is, a custom, it is customary to deposit small pieces of bread, 10 pieces of leavened bread in rooms throughout the house, where the chametz may have been used during the year. The search is traditionally carried out by candlelight with a feather and a wooden spoon to collect the chametz. The use of a candle lamp is required to enable an extremely rigorous and thorough search. Some now now use a flashlight for safety's sake. After the search, one recites an Aramaic statement. All chametz in my possession that I have not seen or removed, or of which I am unaware, is hereby nullified and ownerless as the dust of the earth. So there's this whole ceremony of cleaning out the leaven, of going around to these ten different pieces and making sure they're out as a ceremony to say all the leaven bread has been purged out. There's no more leaven in this house. And this is what Mark the beginning of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so Paul here piggybacks off of this imagery back to 1 Corinthians 5. And he says in verse 7, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. 
clean out the house. And then verse 8, therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is beautiful here. The Apostle Paul is applying the Feast of Unleavened Bread and its imagery to repentance, a kind of corporate repentance that sin must be dealt with. It must be confessed and nailed to the cross. And if one is not willing to humble themselves, confess their sin, and to repent, Paul is saying, clean out the leaven. And the wonder of wonders, this is the proper and appropriate response to the first feast. There is a kind of gospel grammar that goes with the feast. Did you get it? The lamb is sacrificed. The wrath of God passes over. And the right and proper response is repentance. Get the leaven out. Jesus, you are mine. You own me. You're the boss. You call the shots. I'm going to follow you. You died for me. Friend, do you know that gospel grammar? Have you responded to the death and resurrection of Christ that he is your substitute with a heart that says, Jesus, I enlist. I'm one of yours now. I sign. Where do I sign? I'm ready. I'm committed. And as you encounter the, the, the leaven in your life, you, you grieve over it, you confess it, you trust in the promise of forgiveness that's found in our Passover lamb, and you turn from it and you seek to obey. And then you sin again and you confess it and you nail it to the cross and you seek to obey. And then you sin again and you confess it and you nail it to the cross and, and you seek to continually purge the leaven from your life. That's what John Calvin when he spoke of when he talked about the Christian life as a race of repentance. Not a sprint, but a long cross-country race, agonizing with hills and valleys and ups and downs and twists and turns. And so this corporate repentance then also kind of bleeds into the, this personal repentance. So hopefully you can see that, that gospel grammar is baked into the feast, pun intended. It's baked in there. You can't avoid it. And we see this when we come to the New Testament, the, the response of the gospel. You see the Apostle Paul is a devout Pharisee. He repents. He turns from his self-righteousness and he abases himself before the Lord. And, and all those things that he counted as gain, he considered loss. We see this as well with Zacchaeus, that chief tax collector. When, when, when Jesus invites him to Invites him over, invites himself over to his own house to eat. Uh, he, 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 he's ready to give half of his possessions to the poor, and he's going to pay back fourfold anybody he's cheated. And Jesus says, Indeed, salvation has come to this house. This is a true child of Abraham. That's what repentance looks like it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. 
We see this as well in various ways. We see this with Lydia. Sometimes it's not as dramatic as we see with Paul and Zacchaeus. Sometimes it's a kind of inner illumination that God opens Lydia's heart and she receives Paul's message. Joel Beakey comments on this. What is most important in conversion is not the manner or sequence of experiences, but the presence of genuine repentance and faith. When calling sinners to Christ, we must not demand any one pattern of conversion. Instead, we should teach the fundamental principles about repentance and faith and call sinners to Christ. So, friend, are you living a life of repentance, cleaning out the leaven? Have you ever, have you ever made that initial house cleaning, that initial sweep of leaven out of the house? That is the proper response to Christ as our Passover lamb. If you haven't, turn Turn from your rebellions. Submit yourself to the lordship of Christ. He is king. He is your priest who has made himself the sacrifice, but he is also king, and he is the prophet who will speak his truth into your life. Embrace all of who he is, not just the parts that you like. And for those who have embraced Christ, who have turned in repentance, live that life of repentance. That, that life that we see the Apostle Paul spell out in, 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 in Ephesians 4 when he says, let him who, to put off lying, to speak the truth to one another, to put off sinful anger, to let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is profitable that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, uh, you know, to, to put that aside, but then to be tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. All those put-offs, put-on, that's, that's repentance, that's change, that's turning, growing in Christ, living that life of repentance. And it's, a, it's an evangelical repentance. It's a gospel repentance in light of Christ as our sacrifice. Well, we need to live as prepared pilgrims, as penitent pilgrims, but also, lastly, to lean into the perfect pita pita bread because there's a sense I, I mentioned the, the leaven and the cleaning of the leaven that, that is kind of a picture of repentance that clearly the apostle Paul alludes to the, it, it, there's the preparedness which n- not waiting for the bread to rise highlights that preparedness but the bread itself the bread itself as was alluded to last week with the three different matzahs, the matzoth, that middle matzoth that is broken and taken away, wrapped in a napkin, hid and reappears, the bread is a picture of Christ. Well, how so? Well, certainly 
in the sense of the lowliness of Christ, the one who had no sin, no leaven in him, the one who is the perfect, perfect embodiment of humility, who although he existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and was obedient, obedient even unto death upon the cross. He took that low road of humility. He was the sinless one. It also is, in, in a very real sense, a, a picture of burial. And this is a, another fascinating thing with the feast. The gospel grammar of the feast is that, that the Passover highlights death. The unleavened bread highlights burial. And the feast of first fruits highlights resurrection. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. It's a picture of his death, which the prophet Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 53, 7 to 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. This is 700 years before Jesus ever came. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, that for the transgression of my people, striking was due to him. So his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And just like unleavened bread lacks the, the decay and corruption of leaven, so Jesus and his body in the grave would not decay. Because he was without sin. And God would raise him from the dead. And so, he is the one to lean into. To lean into with all your weight, with all your hope. He is our unleavened bread. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you and praise you for the wonder of your grace and kindness toward us. We thank you for these feasts, which wherein at these feasts we can see pictures and shadows and types of our glorious Lord Jesus and even our proper response to him. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to live as prepared pilgrims, as penitent pilgrims, and leaning in to the Lord Jesus with all of our weight, in whose name we pray. Amen.